Yeah. Well, I always call these ghost stories and they can be fun when you talk about them when you're not in the middle of them. The biggest one we had, we call the SSD apocalypse. Welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm Ben. I'm one of the co-founders of Pod Rocket, and we're interviewing Eric Munts, who is the CTO of Mailchimp. How are you today, Eric? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How are y'all? I'm doing well. So really excited to have you on the show, Eric. And you've had a really interesting career, um, a bunch of roles in software development earlier in your career, and then starting as a software engineer at Mailchimp almost 13 years ago, kind of working your way all the way to, to CTO and I know Mailchimp, you know, has has grown into a very large business and also had an acquisition by Intuit a few years ago. So, a lot of exciting stuff to unpack. Maybe we could kind of start with quick overview just what is Mailchimp in case folks are are not familiar with the platform. Yeah, sure. So, Mailchimp is a, a marketing platform for small and medium-sized businesses. We are mostly known for delivering a ton of email, but our platform does far more than that today. We support websites, landing pages, automations are super huge, forms, surveys galore. So, uh, sort of a one-stop shop for marketing for small businesses with about 13 million customers headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, as you noted, acquired by Intuit a little more than a year ago. So it was November 1st last year. So part of Intuit connected to the QuickBooks group, which is the small business and self-employed group at Intuit, which is uh, pretty great. You get the front end and the back end of of everything you need to run an, a phenomenal small and medium-sized business. Awesome. And I, I imagine, you know, with such a large, millions of customers, I mean, that's it's kind of staggering to to think about you know that the size of the customer base and then multiply that by what I imagine is you know large number of of emails and communications sent per customer. Be curious to understand like over the years of of you know you've probably seen you know orders of magnitude growth and scale of the platform. Like, what are some of the kind of most interesting or exciting kind of big technology decisions that you've had to make during your tenure? Yeah, that's a pretty long podcast to go through all of those. So just to start by, you know, talking about just just the scale of, you know, when it was when I started and scale of generally what it is today. When I started, we had about 300,000 total users on the platform. Today, we have over 13 million active customers. We're adding about 14,000 a day. I remember we used to have some pretty big celebrations when we had 1,000 new customers a day. And, you know, when we hit that first million, we actually had a, a pretty big party. It was pretty cool. So, you know, going from, from that scale to where we are today. So we are, we have a sharding mechanism, right? So the way our infrastructure works is we shard users by about a million per, per main shard. And your users won't see me air quoting per main shard. And, and, you know, maybe it's at 1.5 or so million now, just total customer load. And when I started, we only had one of those main shards and we have 21 today that we manage. Uh, some of the first parts of growth was adding a second, right? And when you add a second, you learn of all the things you didn't configure right to be able to, to to manage that and run that. So that was pretty big. That was toward the end of 2010, which was the year I joined. So from that, you know, we learned how to make sure that login and hopping from login to the shard you're on. And, you know, if you are a MailChimp customer, you'll see a, a URL, you know, it'll say US. XX, where XX is the number, and that's the main shard that you're in. 
So, you know, that was pretty big. When I started, we were in managed hosting. And today we are mostly in co-location and are migrating to the cloud, migrating to GCP today. And along the way, we have moved all over the place. So we were in managed hosting, a company called SoftLayer, for I think about seven or eight of those shards. And then we migrated those into co-location and servers that we completely manage ourselves. And that was a lot of work. <laughs> As you can imagine, that was some pretty big... Some pretty big undertakings. We actually started to get pretty good at it. I would never say it was fun. It was always pretty scary because making sure that uptime and everything is running smoothly for customers is really at our core. We just care a ton about our customers, small businesses and what they're doing. So, you know, scaling that, watching that scale was was pretty tough. Along the way, we've had to, you know, sort of re-architect several times and, you know, move from a specific type of hardware to another specific type of hardware. I think probably the biggest thing though is when I started, I don't even know the email volume. It was probably, you know, a couple of million a day. And today we're at about a billion a day. And so watching that and and I don't know if you've if if you know much about email delivery, but it's essentially a big giant black box, right? Where you know how to manage what you're sending to ISPs, but what they do with it is just whatever they do with it. And they don't really give you a whole lot of information about that. And so so scaling all of that and watching that team scale and you know building our own MTA infrastructure, MTA stands for mail transfer agent, and it is the thing that hangs on the edge of the internet that sends and, and receives email. And really getting that to scale to where you know you could go into MailChimp right now and hit start to put together an email and say, I want to send myself a test and it's in your inbox in a few seconds. And being able to make that scale is just a monumental effort by the team. Yeah. And I imagine like, you know, 10, 12 years ago or what the, you know, many of the kind of primitives of a modern cloud de deployment didn't exist. Like Kubernetes, I don't think existed 12 years ago, even like, you know, containerization was maybe early at that point. So like, over the years, there's been you know, these big technological swings. And as you mentioned now, like moving fully to the cloud, what has it been like to kind of adopt some of these things? Have you adopted incrementally or have there been kind of big moves to like do a lot at once? Like how have you kind of managed that transition to modern cloud architecture? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a, a really great question. And I'm really proud of the way we've approached it and how the team has really rallied around it and approached it. So what we have decided to do specifically from going from co-location into the cloud is not to just do a lift and shift. So we don't, we didn't just pick up our infrastructure as it existed three years ago when we started working toward this and just drop it into the cloud. Instead, what we did was leaned in to GCP and said, we're going to adopt these services and use those services to sort of thin the monolith and get it thinned enough to a point where then it makes sense to pick it up and lift and shift it from there. And so it's it's been a really great journey because we had something like, for example, we had a KV store that we have in MySQL. So technology stack, we're pretty much a LAMP stack. So we use PHP, we use MySQL. And, and you know, we do a really great job of managing MySQL. We've got over a million logical instances of, of MySQL that we that we manage across like several thousand physical machines. And so, you know, managing that, we had a thing called KV store that was basically a key value pair, right? You'd store, store blobs in it. And we moved that out to a managed service and within GCP and it reduced the database weight by about a third, right? Which is super helpful. It allows us to store more in the shards and not have to build new shards in co-location. 
And so we've just done that over and over and over again until the till we thinned out the monolith. And now we've picked up the monolith and started to put it in GCP as it, as it exists, you know, adopting Cloud Run and all of those services along the way. And it's I love that you what you said about you know years ago some of those some of those constructs didn't exist and some of them existed but weren't resilient. So for example, today we make very heavy use of BigQuery for a data warehouse. Back, you have like six petabytes of data in it. And it's pretty amazing today. It is, I don't know if you've gotten to play with it at big scale, but it is amazing technology where you can put just a, you know, a ton of records in it, six petabytes worth, and it responds very quickly. But years ago when it was, it was new, we tried it out and we actually crashed it. Um, I, you know, I don't know that we crashed it necessarily for everyone, but for what we were doing, putting data into it, it just, fell over, right? And so that just goes to show you what's happened in the last several years. We were just trying to put, you know, a couple terabytes of data in it as we were, you know, live streaming events and it fell over. And today we've got petabytes in it and it's just totally humming along. You know, the other big thing is, uh, as I mentioned before, we have to manage mail transfer agents and for email delivery, IP addresses are very important, right? So if you're a a specific small business customer of MailChimp's and you're sending enough volume, meaning thousands a day, you will want to have your own IP address so your reputation is tied to it. So we need to actually manage thousands of IP addresses down to specific pieces of hardware. And, um, you know, we're managing all that in co-location. And at this point, you know, I'm not convinced that a cloud provider is going to manage that any better than we can in co-location. So, that infrastructure is staying where it is for the time being, right? And I could see a future where maybe that changes, but you know, for the time being, that's where it is. Got it. So kind of migrating most of the infrastructure to GCP, but then you'll continue to maintain your own physical infrastructure for the MTAs. That's right. That's right. And we have a huge network. So, you know, actually this past week we broke a record with about fifty-seven gigabytes per second of, of sustained outbound traffic, which if you think about it, that's compressed text, right? It's just emails, just compressed text. That's a lot of email. It's a lot of compressed text. So we will we will continue to manage our own network and and keep that in-house and in in co-located data centers and then just tie those to to the cloud providers. One thing I was interested in, you know, thinking about you have thirteen million customers, you're adding 14K per day. Some percentage of those I'm imagining are spammers or you know, some sort of fraudulent use. And we all know email spam is a thing. So like, how do you kind of think about managing the, what I imagine is like a small but steady, you know, influx of spammers and like making sure that they don't degrade, you know, your, the trust of your IP addresses or, or things like that in terms of, you know, compromise the platform for others? Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of that is our secret sauce. So I'm not going to give you too much of that info, but you're absolutely right. You know, the, you know, the saying like ruin the fun for everyone. Um, that's actually what bad actors can do within an email ecosystem, right? Because the IP address reputation, if it's on a shared IP address, if, you know, a hundred thousand MailChimp customers are all sending out emails to the same IP address, if, you know, a thousand of them are doing really horrible things, well, it's going to, you know, literally ruin the fun for everyone. So we need to be super careful with that. And so what we have done, this is where machine learning has really come into play heavily at MailChimp. And it's going to be that way for every ESP. So that's not too much of a secret sauce, right? You know, you can do a little bit of content filtering, but unfortunately, from a content standpoint, bad actors and specifically like email prospectors and marketers tend to look exactly the same from a content standpoint. So you have to go deeper than that. And one of the big things we have 
playing to our advantage is that we have double digit billions of records of activity with email across the entire ecosystem going back to the 20 years that MailChimp has existed. And then we can do a lot of machine learning and, you know, I'm one of those people who who really hesitates to say AI unless it's truly AI, but AI like behavior where where we're looking at um, you know, what's on a list and and then also activity around how people are behaving. So if they sign up and they quickly start doing things or they take a little while, they pop up out of nowhere to do some things. We have some triggers around how all of that works. We won't go too deep into that because it's a bit of the secret sauce and why I believe we have the highest deliverability of anyone in the ESP world. But what's amazing to me is that team is about six people. So, you know, that team is just ridiculously talented and is best in class across the entire entire email ecosystem. I'm curious since since kind of your tenure in the of a CTO in the past few years, or even you know longer than that, your time at Mailchimp, like what's one of the biggest problems you face in terms of like you know a system outage or a bug or an issue, and you know what what was the problem and kind of what did the team do to to rally and, and get it fixed? Yeah, well, you know, I always call these ghost stories, and and they're they can be fun if when you talk about them when you're not in the middle of them. the 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 biggest one we had we call the SSD apocalypse, and it was in January of 2011, and we were still a pretty small team at the time. There's a a guy named Joe who was our chief architect for quite a while, who's now a VP of engineering on product teams, and me and Joe and maybe three or so other engineers on the team at this time. And I was actually off, I remember, because it was January 2nd and my uh, wedding anniversary is January 3rd. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to take time off, go hang out with my wife. And Joe is one of those people, I say he's like a duck, right? Where if if you see a duck above the surface, it looks calm and chill. And that's Joe at all times, always calm. Under the surface, you know, his legs might be going crazy like a duck's, but on the top of the surface, he is just always calm. And so we got one email that was like, hey, team, like things are looking a little weird on these on these, on these these servers. And then a next message that was like, oh, I'm, I'm holding it together, but I don't know. And then the third message was like, dire straits, right? Something has gone gone haywire. And what happened is we just started losing hard drives. Like hard drives just started shutting off, right? And, you know, we were redundant, raided, all of that. And this was in a managed hosting provider. And he's like, I, I'm, I'm barely able to get backups before all of these hardwares are dying. And I mean, and, and the last one that we got backups for was like, seconds before they fully went offline. And it took us a while to get everything back online. We did lose a little bit of data for customers we weren't able to get a backup for. And, you know, this was one of those like 72 hours, all hands on deck, no sleep type thing. And and Joe's famous line is like, I don't trust technology anymore, right? We're just like, why would all hard drives die all at the same time, all of a sudden? And what we found out later was that we were on crucial M4 drives, if I remember the, the brand and, and the manufacturer, right? And they had a firmware bug that, and these were consumer grade, not commercial grade, which was a pretty big problem for our hosting provider to have given us those those hard drives. But they had a firmware bug that after 5,000 hours of, of use, they just shut down. And so because we, you know, they had taken them out of the wrapper and installed them all at roughly the same time, they all hit 5,000 hours within a very short time frame and all went, good night, and just shut down. And so, you know, the the amount of aggressive backing up we did after that was a little, little over, overlord, overlord. But um, you know that was 
that was quite a scary moment. And then I'm going to share one more. One of the ones that I'd like to talk about because it just shows the culture of MailChimp. We're, you know, blameless culture, you know, blameless environment. And we understand that mistakes happen. And, and the biggest rule is don't never hide a problem, right? So around that same time, I was writing code. You know, I was just a software engineer. And I, you know, one of the times people overreact is when they get a bug report from the CEO. And so our CEO said, hey, when I go to this form and I change my settings, it's not the the whatever the cached version or whatever is not picking up those settings quickly. Like it takes a while for it to pick up those settings. I was like, ah, I got to fix Ben's problem. So I went in and looked at it, made a change, tested it really quickly. It was like, okay, that looks good. Got it peer reviewed, pushed it through. And then the next day, I think it may have been, you know, around 24 hours later, someone from support pinged me and was like, hey, users are, a few users have just reported that anytime they make a change, everything gets reset. And so I was like, oh no, you know, so I know no one had touched that code recently. So I go and look at it and sure enough, I was not only busting the cache, but I was busting all saved settings. So quickly reverted that and then ran a script to see how many users may have been, may have been hitting that within the last day. And it's just like the matrix flowing by, right? And I'm like, okay, do we have backups? And of course we didn't have backups. So I have to go into the CEO and say, hey, so I over-aggressively fixed that problem. I mean, I was really freaked out. This was the first time I did something like significantly bad at MailChimp. And so I'm like texting my wife, like, don't spend any money. I'm not going to have a job tomorrow. The CEO ends up having to send an email to 24,000 customers. And he did so just with such humility and such grace and said, you know, he called it the font apocalypse. I guess we like apocalypses. He called it the font apocalypse and said, you know, we're very sorry for this openly. Here's what happened. If this has drastically impacted you, come in to support and use this keyword and we'll, we'll give you some money back. And crazily enough, what happened is that we ended up getting a lot of praise for how you openly deal with and acknowledge a problem. And, you know, I thought I was going to get fired and flash forward a few years and I'm the CTO running all of technology. So it's just sort of a great story of, you know, never hide a problem and build a culture where people can fail. And as long as they own the failure, fix the failure and learn how to make things better from that failure. I did write a bunch of unit tests around that specific piece of code. Even though, even though unit testing really isn't my jam all the time, but but I but I wrote some after that, and I just think that's such a great story about our culture and and how you can you can innovate and move move quickly and and do right by your customers. Yeah, and I'm curious now, like you know, with with kind of having had experiences like that in in the earlier days, at the massive scale you operate at today, how do you kind of think about balancing, like you know? being able to move quickly and have engineers ship code quickly, but also like, you know, if you, if you do an operation that, you know, affects 13 million customers accidentally, it's, it's a big deal. So kind of, how do you think about balancing speed with like safety of, of not making big mistakes? So first off, we have uh, a mission statement for our engineering team and it's, we give marketers production ready software designed to help them grow. And we succeed through togetherness momentum and pragmatism. And so there's four words that you can sort of pull out there and it's production ready, togetherness, momentum, and pragmatism. And so those are sort of the four legs of the stool. And if any one of those are sort of out of balance, then 
things get a little haywire. And so the the one specifically to this particular question is production ready. And what we mean by that is not that it's perfect and bug free. We mean that it is both observable and it will be observed when it launches. And so we have a social contract of deploying, which is that when you deploy, you are around and available. You watch the on-call channel and you know you are ready to go if anything happens with the code that you have just deployed. We also have a bit of an odd stance. I don't really believe in stage environments because they tend to get too far separated from production environments. So we feature flag extremely heavily and to the extent possible, we test in production. So we deploy dark code, you know, code that's in production, but not in any user path. And then we add paths through feature flags to what we call internal customers only. So that would be folks, you know, coming from our IPs or whatever, so that we can then test in production with production load and, you know, a real environment, you know, obviously test and development you know, make sure it works in dev before you, <laughs> before you push it. But then, then you ramp up those feature flags and, and watch as you ramp them up. So you may ramp to 5% and then watch, make sure everything is looking, looking good there. And then the other thing is just that, you know, we have a bit of a, we have this big environment, right? We send a lot of email, but we're also adding new features and, and, you know, new channels all the time. So if you make a change to the email delivery infrastructure, you know, that has to work really well because it's happening a lot all the time. If you add 50 milliseconds to every email send, the servers are going to catch fire, right? So, you know, acknowledging that there's hot paths and parts of the product that need to be treated like a, you know, 20 year old product and other parts that are like, just go and experiment and test and learn, right? So if you're making a change to surveys, it's fine. It'll be fine if it's not 100% perfect. What you want to do is figure out whether it's what users need and it's built the way users want it and it's going to empower small business. So as, as I mentioned before, um, you know, you've kind of gone from software engineer and then worked your way up all the way to, to CTO with the role you've had for the past three years. And I'm curious, like, yeah, what, what's kind of kept you at MailChimp for so long? And, you know, what has that path been like to, to kind of both, you know, grow with the organization and grow your role in terms of role and responsibilities over the past 12 years? Yeah. I mean, first off, I've had just a tremendous amount of help along the way. I have an absolutely phenomenal team. It's both the engineering team who roll up to me, but also peers and partners along the way. And then, you know, the founders at MailChimp have created an environment where someone like me can thrive. And that's, that's pretty great. It's pretty awesome. So, you know, for me, one of the things I learned in my career was that, so prior to MailChimp, I worked for the federal government and I built software for federal probation officers and probation officers are sort of like this weird mixture between social work and law enforcement, right? So the people I worked for were helping people acclimate back to, into society after being released from federal prison. That's a super important job. Recidivit, recidivit, recidivism rates, it's always been a hard word for me to say. I shouldn't have tried it on a podcast, are, are, are pretty high, right? And so if I can build software that help these officers be safe and help them really make sure that these people thrive when they come back into society, then it feels like I'm doing something really meaningful. 
as you can imagine, working for the government, it's not always the easiest work, right? There's a lot of red tape and the software was pretty antiquated, but I loved that job because of the impact I was making on the end users. And so what I learned is I went from there to another company that, you know, had really modern tech stack, but I just didn't care about the business that much. I didn't care about the end users and making them happy. And I was like, why am I happier at the government where it's actually harder to get work done? And, you know, I realized that it's because I have to care about the end user. And so when I first started talking to MailChimp, I was like, email, why should I care about email? And they said, well, you know, because it's a, a really high ROI channel for small business, but it's really about small business and making small business succeed. And so that part is what's kept me, you know, around for almost 13 years. Also that, you know, it's a, I guess the term we're using in industry now is a scale up, right? It wasn't a startup when I started. It was already a rocket ship. The ship was built. It was fueled. The ignition switch was hit. It had taken off, but I think it was tethered to the ground by its tech stack. And, you know, we would release things and they were just super broken. <laughs> we were going super fast, but we would release things like to do implement this in the interface. Right. And so my job was to release that tether and then add a navigation system so that we wouldn't just impale into a planet. And because of that, because of the scale up aspect of it, my job was different every year, right. Or at least every two years, my job sort of changed what was important for a while. It was writing code. Then it was, you know, writing code and building infrastructure. And then it was building teams and, you know, that mission statement is from a few years back and we're on like version four, probably of career levels, right? So it's just changed so much every couple of years. It's kept me super engaged. And now with kind of, I believe like around 500 engineers, what, what does your day-to-day job look like? Yeah, day-to-day, I'm in a lot of meetings. I have not written production code in seven years. I, I can still read it, though. I am still the, the seventh total contributor to the MailChimp code base. There's, a, there's an engineer named David who overtook me for number six, and I keep sort of like threatening in my mind that I'm going to go write some code. I take him back. But, you know, I am, you know, CTO comes in a bunch of different flavors, right? There can be like the sort of head nerd that's you know, writing a lot of code and doing a lot of architecture and infrastructure work. For me, I'm more the business-oriented CTO who's in a lot of strategy discussions and a lot of execution discussions with partners on the product side and, you know, the leader of marketing about how we can make our tech stack work really well for, for their team. And so I'm doing all of that through technology, but it's mostly about the business and strategy and you know, how we grow users, how we grow revenue. And of course, we were acquired a year ago. So there's a lot of work on the integration side and trying to learn, you know, Intuit and the Intuit, you know, engineering community and where we fit in all of that. So my day-to-day is mostly on that side. So imagine, you know, being at MailChimp through such a you know large part of your career and a large part of the history of MailChimp. You have this kind of immense knowledge of the history and decisions that were made in the past and you know, why things have happened over the years. And I imagine that's a, you know, a big asset as you're, you know, a leader in the company. At the same time, I'm curious, how do you think about making sure you're kind of constantly bringing in some amount of new ideas or, you know, figuring out what, what are other people in the world doing and bringing that into kind of how you make decisions at, at MailChimp? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Well, the acquisition has made that a little easier because, you know, being acquired and gaining experience and expertise from an org that's as big as Intuits and as experienced as Intuits has been, has been super helpful, right? So we can, we can lean on them and, and, 
get a ton of feedback and help there. And, and I'm a part of a ton of different communities as well as, you know, the rest of our principal engineers and, and everyone else being involved in the Intuit architecture communities is super helpful. You know, prior to that, it's, it's about mindset, right? And that no idea is a bad idea. And when you hire new people, it's really important that they understand the context of why decisions were made in the past, because without that context, it can be like, you have a KV store in MySQL. Why on earth would you do that? Right. And the answer is, well, back then with a really tiny team, we had operationalized MySQL super well and it fit there. So there we go. Today with different tech stacks and different tools with your experience, how would you build this? And knowing how you would build it, well, then how would you migrate us to that? Right. And it, it's, it's a really tight balancing act because I don't believe in polyglot environments. I'm a strong believer of doing things one way and only one way, but I also can be convinced to do them a new way that's going to be better. Right. So for example, we are migrating to React for our front end from Dojo because it just makes a ton of sense. It's more modernized. You can hire tons of people who know it. It's faster. It's easier to understand all of those things. So we just have to really balance the context of why you made decisions in the past with why a decision's right in the future. And that's where the pragmatism part of that mission statement I said really comes in. What are you most proud of in, in your time uh, at MailChimp? Yeah, I am. I am proud of a lot, but I think the thing I'm most proud of is our apprenticeship program and the way it has grown really phenomenal engineers by giving them opportunity that, you know, they wouldn't have gotten at most companies or maybe are hard to find because they're from sort of non-traditional backgrounds. So we started the program in, I think, 2012. We had some folks in our customer service department that were really highly technical and doing really highly technical work. And when you ask them, you know, well, why are you not an engineer? You tend to get those typical imposter syndrome style answers, right? I don't have a degree in computer science or, you know, I couldn't possibly do what you do because of X, Y, or Z. So we built a program and, you know, I don't have a degree in computer science. I have a math degree. And so, you know, I think it's sort of natural for me to say, well, no, you can do it. You just have to be curious and, you know, understand logic and and put the put the work in. So we started that program in, in 2012. The way the program works is folks apply for a position on the engineering team. If they get it, they're on the engineering team for three months. At the end of that three months, it's a try to buy. Both parties can decide whether they want to stick stick with it or not. If they don't, they go back to their other position. And I don't know the numbers today, but recently we had over 70 folks in our engineering team that had started at the company not in engineering. Staff engineers, we had a senior director in engineering you know, who had a, an art degree background and started in customer service. And it's just it's just really awesome to, you know, watch these people do their work. And it actually creates an engineer who, you know, really deeply values the customer experience and understands what it's like to be a customer, right? And sometimes that's even harder to teach than how to code. So super proud of, of how that's come together. So I'm curious, you know, you, you've been in the email world for, you know, a long time, but email has been around it. I think it's been around since like the eighties, like in some form and, you know, you know, email has been around forever, but at the same time, you know, nowadays there's a lot of other ways to communicate. There's other ways companies reach their customers, whether it's through, you know, social or through SMS. And so like, I'm curious, like, what do you see as the future of email? Like, 
will email still be a, a, you know kind of a popular and primary channel in 10 20 30 years or like are there other channels you think will overtake email yeah what 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 is, what is your opinion on that that's a great question and one i get a lot and i really need to polish up a better answer for it because it's so hard to look into the crystal ball and see what's coming you know i've been at mailchimp for 12 years and since day 1 there's people have talked to me or asked me about the inevitable downfall and demise of email. And it seems like, you know, everyone thinks it's inevitable, but here it is um, as strong as ever. So I'm not sure I would ever prophesize that it, that it will officially go away anytime soon. That said, you know, technology naturally will evolve and whether it's email or something that's email like that uses a different protocol or something else like that, I don't really know. I, you know, I don't know what's coming. Privacy is a big concern and email, the protocol for email around privacy is pretty wacky, right? You just, if you know the email address, go to town and there you go. And if you've ever looked at the SMTP protocol, it is rough. <laughs> if, if any listeners out there haven't looked at it and, you know, need to take a nap, go try to read it. It really is a really tough protocol. It's very chatty. Um, and so I could see the protocol evolving somehow and becoming a little less chatty, a little more specific. And, you know, maybe the like address and the way the addresses work change. That said, it's, it's, it's a rich environment, right? You can deliver really, really rich content where in text you can't. It's harder to deliver as rich content in text messages. You know, we use Slack and you can deliver pretty rich stuff in Slack, but you have to also be part of the community and join specific channels and all of that, right? So uh, it's tough, but I think that messaging and personalized messaging that's sent from small businesses to consumers at the right time with the right content, you know, whether that's email or something else, it's going to be here and MailChimp is going to be a part of it and working to make it work really well for small businesses. I love it, right? I actually love getting marketing. I'm one of those weird, I love getting marketing content. I'm like a marketer's dream come true. So, you know, I, I really do believe that that type of ecosystem is here to stay, whether it's email or something that, you know, got evolved from email or looks like it. We send a billion a day and that's not going away. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to get you signed up for the Log Rocket mailing list. <laughs> Will do. So, so lastly, curious, like, what are you most excited for in terms of a specific technology or like a engineering paradigm that's that's growing in popularity? Yeah, what 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 what's most exciting to you? Well, I'm excited about our cloud migration. That team's doing a bunch of great work, and there's just some amazing technologies that we're able to make use of there. I'm, you know, being 100% honest, I'm a little skeptical of, you know, blockchain and, and where that's going. So I'm sort of looking at that with a side eye. I've yet to see a specific implementation where I'm like, that actually does require blockchain. So I'm watching it, but, you know, it's interesting, but I, I still don't really see a need yet for, for businesses. From a MailChimp standpoint, you know, we just launched a thing called Webhooks in automations that I'm really excited about to see what the developer community does. So in your... In a customer journey, you can you can make one of your destinations sending a webhook. So you basically slap in any endpoint and it'll send a webhook with a little bit of data to it. And it's sort of an open-ended way for folks to connect automations to the power of MailChimp, MailChimp's activity. So I'm excited to see where developers go with that. Anytime we open up some new API or something, it's 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 exciting for me to see what all of the third-party developers are going to do with it. So that's exciting. 
Well, Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been great and hope, hope to have you back in the future. Would love to. Thanks again for having me and a happy end of year.